Let's turn our Bibles to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 11. We continue this morning in the upper room. And in fact, it appears that we're leaving the upper room. And because as we see that in chapter 14, verse 31, Jesus said, come now, let us leave. And so the disciples appear to be leaving the upper room with the Lord Jesus Christ in the middle of the night. But let us go to God's Word in John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while, each, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers, such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is my Father's glory. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is God's word. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Oh, Father, we ask that by your Spirit, you would bless us to behold the Lord Jesus Christ. Minister to us, your people. Amen. Again, that night in the upper room, the Lord Jesus Christ's men have experienced Jesus taking the place of a, of a slave or a servant and washing their feet, giving them an example of how they should serve each other. He has also instituted the Lord's Supper and spoke of the new covenant in my blood. All of this is shocking to every man in that room. Because here Jesus is making a new covenant. He's washing their feet as a rabbi. Rabbis don't do that. And he's speaking of betrayal. And he's even spoken to Peter with all of Peter's bravery. Before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And as what we have learned is that there's clearly fear in the room. An uncertainty that has gripped these men. But now they're on the move. Jesus did most of his best teaching on the move. 
He was like a, a teacher like Aristotle. He often taught his students on the move. As he walked, he taught. Jesus is a master at it. No matter where Jesus was, whether he was walking or eating, Jesus was always teaching. And here, the Lord Jesus Christ says to them, I am the true vine. Now, they had heard these I am statements before by the Lord Jesus Christ, but here the Lord Jesus Christ, by saying I am or ego emi, he is saying, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord God of Israel. Again, there's seven of these I am statements in the Gospel of John, and this is the final one. This is the final one. So what does Jesus mean by I am the true vine? Well, in the imagination of the men that were walking with him, probably going to the Kidron Valley, weaving themselves through the vineyards, most likely, very small little vineyards they would have went by, going down to the Kidron Valley, and across the Kidron Valley to the east is the Garden of Gethsemane. That's what's happening in the story. But this idea of the vine would have triggered all kinds of messianic expectation in these men. Because in the Old Testament, who is the, who is the gardener? Or actually, who is the vine dresser? And who is the vine? I want us to look at that deeply from the Old Testament. You should have some of that in your notes if you pick, it, pick some up before you had come in here. But let's look at the Lord as the vine dresser because Jesus is very clear, my father is the gardener. I think that from the Greek, that's a weaker word, and I guess garden might make more sense to our modern sensibilities. These wouldn't have been big vineyards that we see today in Marin, Cali Cali Marin, California, or other places that you see these glorious big vineyards. Most vineyards would have been quite small. They would have been quite small, and so I think that's the reason we see the word gardener. But vine dresser is more accurate, and when you Go to the Psalms, you hear the psalmist sing in Psalm 80, verse 8 and 9, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. What vine is he speaking? Or is he singing? Well, the vine is Israel, isn't it? The vine is Israel themselves. God took the vine out of slavery and then brought it into the promised land and gave them the promised land. He went before them as a divine warrior, and he planted them there, and they flourished, and they filled the land. But again, that's because of the vine dresser. Like a farm, a hardworking farmer has to clear the land and make the walls and the tower, the watchtower, and then, of course, where you're going to, where you're going to actually get the grapes and step on them and have that leak out into another storage that. He has to prepare that, and that's what the, the psalmist is singing. God did all of that, and he planted us in this prosperous land. In Isaiah, the prophet, chapter 5, verse 1, we see that Israel is the vineyard. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. Who is Isaiah speaking of when he says, I will sing of the one I love? He's speaking of the Lord, isn't he? 
He's speaking about Yahweh himself. And then he continues on. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a, cut out a wine press as well. There you see the details. It's God who has done that. In the life of Israel, the Lord had always been faithful in leading them into the promised land, fulfilling his promises to, A to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to the people at Sinai. He had always been faithful to his vine, Israel, to his vineyard. But how about Israel? What's Israel's track record? Israel, again and again, that stiff-necked people that's constantly repeated throughout the Old Testament was faithless often, wasn't it? A vine without fruit, a fruitless vineyard. And let's look at that particularly again in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 5, verse 2, of Israel as a fruitless vineyard. If you're a viticulturalist, of course, you... you and you're, you've planted grapes and you've done all this work, you want to harvest, don't you? If you put on all this work. But you, you see about all the labors of the Lord God of Israel, well, we see it here. Then he looked for a crop of grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What could, what more could have, uh, could have been done for you, my vineyard, than I have done for it. When I looked for good grapes, why did it only yield bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedges and it will be destroyed. I will break down its walls and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice but saw bloodshed for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. As the prophet Isaiah is prophesying God's word to God's people, this is a time of great moral darkness, great injustice amongst the most powerful, crushing the weakest among Israel. And God is thundering this rebuke through his prophet Isaiah about his vineyard because there's no fruit, because there's no obedience. There's no justice. There's no righteousness. There's no true worship in Israel. No heart and life obedience exists. But the prophets still prophesy at risk to their own life, to a people who want to Stop their ears and no longer listen to the word of God. And didn't Moses warn them about this? When they were on the Jordan River, on the east side of the Jordan, before they entered the promised land, did he not war warn them about their rebellion that would come? 
that Isaiah prophesied about and actually the prophet Hosea prophesied about the spreading vine of Israel. And these were contemporaries. They overlapped in their ministry, Hosea and Isaiah. And the verse says, Israel was a spreading vine. It brought forth fruit for himself. As his fruit increased, he built more altars. As his land prospered, he adorned his sacred stones. Their heart is deceitful, and now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will demolish their altars and destroy their sacred stones. Israel was prosperous. But they were prosperous in what? The fruit of their labors, their own fruit. You notice it says theirs or his. Not God's blessing, but they saw it as their blessing, their labor. And what do we see in the midst of prosperity? In the midst of prosperity, are they worshiping the Lord or have they forgot him? Well, they forgot him to the very point that they're willing to erect sacred stones, aren't they? To other deities. That's what it's speaking of here. They are worshiping other gods on other altars and other stones. Their heart is deceitful. Again, these are prophecies that these men would have known. They would have known about the failure of the vine. And in fact, the Pharisaical movement is a movement that encouraged faithfulness because they did not want to be the vine that failed and was fruitless. They wanted to be a fruitful vine. So they committed themselves, what? To the Torah. To the writings of Moses and the prophets and the other poets. They were a people that cherished the word because they did not want this to happen again in Israel. And going, this is a warning for the church, isn't it, in the West, in every age of prosperity, not just our own. It's not as if prosperity has given us many blessings, in fact, when it comes to the world of the spiritual, when it comes to even more gr- greater commitment to Christ. I just don't see that fruit. It's a warning for Not only Israel in Isaiah and Hosea's time, but it's a warning to the church in every age of prosperity. And in the dark shadow of coming doom that Isaiah and Hosea prophesied, a promise of future fruitfulness comes from the mouth of Isaiah. Isaiah 27. Isaiah 27. Verse 2 says this, in that day, sing about a fruitful vineyard. And what has he already spoken? There's no fruitful vineyard in Israel. It's fruitless. The fruit is all bad. But here the prophet declares, sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. I am not angry. If only there were briars and thorns confronting me, I would march against them in battle. I would set them all on fire. If anyone attacked this fruitful vineyard, I would come to its defense. Or else let them come to me for refuge. Let them make peace with me. Yes, let them make peace with me. And Isaiah, did he not prophesy about a prince of peace? 
a prince of peace. And then the prophet says this, in days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will bud and blossom and fill all the world with fruit. Wait, God, I, I thought you were going to destroy Israel. I thought you were going to, to break down the walls of the vineyard. I thought the watchtowers would fall. I, I thought there would only be briars and thistles, and it would be a land abandoned. And now you speak of a fruitful vineyard. What do you speak of? Because Israel was never that. Israel could never accomplish that. It had always failed. So what fruitful vineyard is the prophet Isaiah prophesying about? And I love that language at the end. It's a vine that will fill all the world with fruit. It's global. What's Jesus saying that night as they're walking to, to the Kidron Valley? I am that true vine. I am the fruitful vine that Isaiah prophesied. I am the one that Israel had yearned for, the true Israel, where Israel had failed. Jesus is out that night. This is, the, this is the moment. He's going to the cross. He has not failed. In fact, at the very end of his crucifixion, what does he say? It is finished. It is done. The fruitful vine is here. Jesus is that true vine that is life. He is the true Israel. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I mean, we can say that intellectually, but do I believe that Jesus is the true vine? Do I believe that he's the life giver? Do I believe that he is my life? And forevermore do I believe that. The Gospel of John has arrested hearers for 2,000 years asking, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is the true vine? That he's your life? Life! He's your center. Because what we know from him already in the context is that he is the, the way the truth and the life. You could imagine when Jesus said that they were not speaking. There was a kind of silence. How could they take this in? Like I said last week, it's like drinking from a fire hydrant. Well, what's he saying? But we, some 2,000 years, have time to chew on what they had only heard. Jesus says 11 times in this passage, remain. You see that in your NIV, remain? The other word is abide. Historically, it's almost always been translated, abide in me. The NIV said remind, remain. Similar, right? Similar. But it's mentioned 11 times, especially in the Greek, but it's the highest concentration of this word in the entire Bible. There's no place that's even close to the concentration of this word, abide, 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 abide. 
Because if you're going to be fruitful in the Christian life, you need to abide in, in me, in the true vine. Abiding fruitfulness. It is very clear that the Lord Jesus Christ wants his disciples to be fruitful. The Father in heaven sent him, right? To be the sacrifice of sin so that his people would be fruitful. Full of fruit. Full of life. He wants this wondrously abiding fruitfulness. And basically, Jesus somewhat gives us a viticulture class of 101. I know, a spiritual viticultural class. But he uses what would have been common in that day, and he is, has a wondrous illustration probably of a little garden with vines in it. And if this is the season, they probably had seen how harshly these vines had been cut back. And maybe even at that time, the sprout was already coming forth from the little stubs that were on the vine, the little branches cut back to about this in the ancient world. And I'm going to California, so I'll see a lot of this right now. It's a pruning season. You'll see all these canes or branches cut from the vines. Of course, today we have lovely trellis systems that are quite different than the ancient world, which would have been a vine primarily without a trellis system. And it would have grown like this. And in the winter, they would have cut it down. And all you would have seen is the vine, and you would have seen the stubs, the branches. And Jesus says, my father prunes, doesn't he? You see that? He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, which every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. So the, this, this pruning of vines gives a response to the plant to grow greater vines, healthier vines, in order that that plant would be fruitful. But it's not only the winter pruning, it's the spring sucker pruning and the pruning throughout the year in order that all the energy would go towards fruitfulness. And so Jesus uses this very common illustration that all of them would have known to see that's what God is doing. He's pruning and if you're, a, if you're one of the saints, if you find yourself in Christ, God the Father prunes, doesn't he? He prunes, and often when he prunes, what's, what's left in the vineyard when, when the vine dresser goes through? Basically the vine and stubs. And so when God prunes us, often he reveals the centrality of Christ in our lives. It's not covered over with a bunch of leaves. It's, it's revealed to focus on him. And that is the point here, that we might focus our affections on Christ. And so going very, a little bit more quickly, deeply into what is the fruitfulness which Christ speaks, the first part we can say is fruitfulness begins with faith in Jesus. The fruitfulness of every believer begins with faith in Jesus. Of course, with faith in Christ is always repentance. They're always connected. Fruitfulness then begins with repentance in Jesus. That means we are turning to Jesus. And even Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And so what are you doing in repentance? What are you doing? You're, you're turning away from what? You're dirty, turning away from your sin. You're turning away from those dead canes that need to be cut off anyhow. And then he says, keep doing that. Keep abiding and keep being pruned by the vine dresser, our Father. Of course, the fruit of faith and repentance 
leads to what? Holiness. Look at verse 3. You are already clean because the word I have spoken to you. How does God often prune you and I? Through the word, doesn't he? Through the word, he, he rebukes and he corrects and he trains up in righteousness so that the man and woman of God might be fully equipped for every good work. Of course, the Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 6, 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God or slaves to righteousness, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. If you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are repenting of your sin, this is going to grow in you a life of holiness. A life of Christ's conformity, as I say often. And of course, this fruitfulness is a work of who? Who is this work? Where does it begin? When you are born of the Spirit of God, Right? You have the very one who not only showed you the beauty of Christ and you believed, but also showed you the ugliness of sin so that you would turn from it and flee to him and produce what? The fruit of the Spirit. And, and what are those fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But that's the work of the Spirit, right, in you. And of course, there's, as I said already about the fruit, fruitfulness is a work of the Father's pruning. Isn't it fascinating, the three persons of the Trinity we just spoke about, the Son, the Spirit, and the Father. Now, God does prune in other ways besides the Word. He prunes us in our time of prayer. He prunes us in our relationships when those who love us actually speak the Word of God to us or rebuke us for a pattern that we ought not to be living. It might be painful when you hear the rebuke of a friend, but it leads to life, doesn't it? Proverbs are often like that. There's, that's a good friend. Because they're seeking you, they're seeking for you to stay on the path with Christ. To follow Christ. Not to go back to your old ways. Not to go back to the slavery of the flesh. But live in the freedom of Christ. Those are friends I want to prune me. My wife is one of the greatest pruners of my life. Because she can speak so clearly to me, and I've been so wondrously blessed. And God prunes that worthless disease branch through relationship. And of course, there's suffering, isn't there? Suffering has a way of taking the scales off on our eyes and making them fall off, and we see Christ. We see the vine. We see where our life really is. We see what really matters. It's often in that valley of suffering. And of course, failures. How many have you failed in such an embarrassing way? And often in those failures, right, you were made more fruitful. You were made more productive. You were made a better husband and a better wife. You were made a better son and a better daughter. You were made a better servant of Christ. But it came by your embarrassment. It came by your failings. That's the God who's pruning us and cares for us so that we would bear much fruit. And what is very clear, we do see this. Even in God's sovereignty, fruitfulness is a work of the will. 
Because again, you see, remain, 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 remain. It is not primary, it's secondary. But there's a work of the will there, isn't there? Empowered by the Spirit under the sovereignty of God to make us more fruitful. And we should say, glory, hallelujah, for this abiding fruitfulness. Because where does the fruit then ultimately come? It's still the work of God in us. The work of God in us. Now, there's a few pieces at the end, this abiding love and abiding joy. I want to get there very quickly, but the abiding love is important for us to see. And of course, there's a peace on prayer. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. People think that's a license to pray anything you want, to get from God anything you want. Here's the problem with taking it out of context. That's what it would be. If you're abiding in Christ, no longer is it about your will, it's about his will. Because Christian prayer is not about my wish list. Christian prayer is about conforming my will to God's will. And the Lord's prayer is very clear. It's our Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be his name. His kingdom come, his will be done. And his will be done on earth, in my life, as it's done in heaven. It's reorienting our will to God's will. And so when you hear that prayer, don't take it out of context or because we have a faulty definition of biblical prayer. Because if you look at most of the prayers of all the scripture, they're full of thanksgiving and praises and laments. Seldom are they for our wish list. When you look at all the prayers, you see what Christian prayer looks like from scripture. But it's clear that Jesus wants to communicate to them, abide in my love. Abide in my love. The reason you abide in me is because I love you. What's he going to do in hours from this moment where he's speaking to them on the go? He's going to die, isn't he? They're going to brutalize his body and raise him on a tree and crucify him. How is he going to love them? He's going to lay down his life for them. Abide in my love. I love you more richly than all loves in the entire universe love you. You can add up all the loves in the universe and you, that, won't even, that won't even be a drop in the universe compared to the love of God for you in Christ and Him crucified. Abide in it. And do, how do you abide in it? Simply, listen to my voice, heed it, live it. Obedience is one of living the word, living for Christ. That's loving Him because Jesus did that too. He did the will of his Father in heaven. And so he's calling us to follow after him. Because why? Because I, he wants joy. He wants you and I to be bubbling forth full of joy. But we need to be abiding in this joy as he says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. I want my joy in you. I want you to, and that, I believe that joy, that's, Oh, that's where you get even more fruitfulness. But listen to John in this abiding joy. In John, the, the Baptist speaking at the end of his life, John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the, to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. And it's now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. You hear that? 
He must become greater. I must become less. You, rem you abide in Christ. You will become less. He will become greater, and your joy will be complete. The problem is there's so many fake joys or temporal joys that I fixate my own soul upon, and I wonder why I'm not advancing and growing more in my own joy. Because I'm not abiding in him and in his love. Oh, Heavenly Father, help me to become less. Of course, Jesus has this wondrous joy. It's a joy unspeakable. It's almost un it's unimaginable that he says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. His joy was to die for his people, to die for those who are in him, who abide in him. That was his joy, and that we might have joy. That last word, that your joy may be complete, the word is also most, mostly translated full. Full joy. Overflowing joy. Cups overflowing. What does Jesus want for his people? As they abide in him, that they would have joy. That they have wondrous laughs when they're with the saints. That they'd have a joy that would abide for them even when their life is slipping away. And they're all alone. That they would have joy even in the midst of screaming kids that you love deeply but you'd like to strangle at that moment. Because you again look to Jesus where there's joy. Joy. Joy to the full. May God empower you to abide in him so your joy may be full. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we're so thankful for Jesus. So thankful for his sacrificial death upon the cross. So thankful that you have come into our hard hearts and made us alive. So thankful that you abide with us and empower us by your spirit to abide in you that we would bear much fruit, the fruit of the spirit. Oh, but help our weak wills. Help our, our mortal flesh to obey. I need your power in me. We need your power in us that we might abide in you because apart from you, O oh Lord Jesus Christ, we can do nothing of spiritual, lasting, eternal value. Hear our prayers. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.